This is the Evergreen Empire. Green grow the forests and fair flow the streams. The gentle deer grazes, the wild blossom gleams. From ocean wave raging to mountain serene. All nature's proclaiming our land's evergreen. Welcome to Columbia Conversations. I'm Felix Bunnell, editor of Columbia Magazine for the Washington State Historical Society. On this episode, we speak with Dennis Larson, author of four books about 19th century Northwest settler Ezra Meeker, including his most recent, Saving the Oregon Trail, Ezra Meeker's Last Grand Quest. He actually came into the city with a covered wagon and ox team and immediately got arrested for violating city ordinances. <laughs> and, and they impounded his wagon and ox team. I spoke with Dennis Larson by phone from his home in Olympia. Dennis Larson, thanks for joining us on Columbia Conversations. Now, you published a book, I think it was last year, called Saving the Oregon Trail, Ezra Meeker's Last Grand Quest. Before we get into the book, for someone who might have no idea who Ezra Meeker was, who was Ezra Meeker? Okay, Ezra Meeker was a typical pioneer of the 1850s. In 1852, he left his home in Iowa and trekked west over the Oregon Trail and arrived eventually in Puget Sound. And for the oh, first several years here, he was a struggling pioneer. He was... Uh, tried a few business enterprises that failed. He tried farming up in the Fern Hill area in Tacoma, and that failed. And so about 1862, he threw in the towel and living in the Tacoma Stellicum area and said, I'm, I'm going to move to the Puyallup Valley. And so he got down to the Puyallup Valley, and he was pretty much broke when he arrived down there and started homesteading and clearing land. And in the mid-1860s, uh, he, he and his father started experimenting with hop growing. And they uh, quickly discovered that they could make more money growing hops than they could doing typical farming. And so they, he, he, he personally transitioned really quickly into becoming a major hop grower in the valley. And he made a lot of money doing it. And he kept expanding, expanding. And then he started a brokerage business and he started buying hops from other growers around and selling those. And eventually, he, when the railroads came west, he managed to start sending hops to the East Coast. And in the mid-1800s, uh, 1880s, I mean, he pioneered the hop trade with London, England. Huh. And in the process, he became probably one of the wealthiest men in Washington Territory, if not the wealthiest. And in the 1890s, it all went bust because uh, he overextended, he didn't diversify, and uh, hop lice invaded the West Coast and kind of took away a competitive advantage that we had. The East Coast and England had been fighting hop lice forever, and the West Coast, for their infancy, didn't have that problem. Hmm. But but the lice came west on the on the hop trains, huh. <laughs> and... So in, I think it was 1890 when they exploded all over the West Coast. So he was uh, looking at bankruptcy again. And so in his mid-60s, 
mid-60s, around age 65 or so, he decided to join the Klondike Gold Rush. <laughs> and, and he went up over Chilkoot Pass the first year when everybody went over there with about two tons of groceries and started a store in Dawson. He floated down the Yuc- built a boat, floated down the Yukon River, and built a store in Dawson, sold everything he had in a, about a month or two, came out over the Dalton Trail, made his way back to Puyallup, picked up his son-in-law, and went back up over the Dawson Trail in September and <laughs> into Dawson and stayed the winter. And he ended up staying up there for four years. Uh, he'd come down off and on to resupply and to connect with his family and stuff. And he dabbled in gold and stuff up there. And while he was up there, he started thinking about the Oregon Trail. He started writing letters to his wife saying, you know, my experience coming up here and everything was pretty similar to the Oregon Trail. He says it was boats going down the river instead of covered wagons. But, you know, he was uh, pretty interested in that. And so for his 50th wedding anniversary, he came back to Puyallup, and his family pretty much convinced him to stay. But he was an incredibly restless individual, and he became the president of the Washington State Historical Society. Um, he was uh, got in conflicts with the current with the current secretary at the time, <laughs> and so so anyhow he uh, he ended up you know resigning from the presidency and said I'm going to do something else, and he started writing a book about his pioneer experience coming over the Oregon Trail and settling in Washington Territory. And in the process of writing that book, he became enamored with the thought that the trail is disappearing and the memory of what the pioneers of his generation had accomplished is disappearing. He says, they're all dying and we're not, you know, our legacy is gone. And so he decided that he was going to make sure that the legacy of the pioneers and the trail, as much of it as was around, could be remembered and saved. And so in 1906, he took a covered wagon and an ox team at age 75 and started (laughs) east over the Oregon Trail. And he had a dog with him also. He went through a couple helpers that you know, he started in February up in Seattle, and, and he did lectures at various cities along the way, uh, starting in Seattle and hitting Kent and Auburn and Tacoma and on south down to Portland. And when he got to Portland, he tried to talk the, a local church into kind of sponsoring him, and the minister got up there and he said, no way in the world should anyone in this congregation give that man a penny because all he's going to do is go out on the Great Plains and die. And his daughter was appalled, and she she wrote letters to him and said, you know, people are going to laugh at you. You're 75 years old, you know, and he just kind of ignored her, too. And he took off, and he went to the Dalles, where he actually really started. And a drifter kind of came into camp called William Mardon, and he says, I hear you're looking for a job, you know, somebody to help you. And he said, yeah, and he said, but he, 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 Mika wrote, he, he looked over Mardon and he said, I don't know if this guy's what I want. <laughs> but they stuck, and it was a partnership that lasted for four years. Hmm. And, and uh, without Mardon, Mika could not have accomplished half of what he did. 
Yep, but what, but he what, went, one thing before you get um, further along, um, he I know Meeker wrote a number of books. Had he written yeah. all of those before he hit it off on this this journey, or was that did that stuff come a little no. bit later? No, he wrote the first one, Pioneer Reminiscences, and mm-hmm. he published that in 1905, and that was just before he left on the trip. Okay. And then as he was as he was going east, he was writing a, a book about what he was doing. Got it. And when he got to Nebraska, he published it, and he then sold that book as he headed east. And it took him three years to do this journey, and the book went through four printings, and he sold 10,000 copies. Do you get a sense that there was some reason why he didn't want to stay home? He was just restless, and he he was, you know, he, he, was, he had a happy marriage. He got along with his, his uh, you know, wife and his kids and everything. It just He had this drive in him that he could not calm down. And he was more happy when he was doing these adventures, like going up to the Klondike and, you know, going on the Oregon Trail and going to London, England, you know, when he was doing the hop business. And uh, he was just, from the very beginning, restless and, and had this urge to accomplish things. And, you know, people have asked me, well, where'd the spark come from? And, and I, I think it was inherited. Um, he had ancestors that had been coming west gradually over the, you know, generations. He had a great-grandfather who fought in the American Revolution and drafted every one of his kids to come in and join him in the American Revolution. So hmm. it, it was his great-great-grand-ancestor who founded uh, New Jersey, got involved in kicking the British government out of New Jersey. <laughs> so, you know, so it was, it was a, an inherited trait that found overdrive in him. And, I mean, you know. and as he's working his way east, you know, from Seattle and Portland and the Dalles and everything, what kind of reception is he getting from from local people? I mean, are they are they are they putting him up, letting him camp in their yards, or where does he stay along the way? Well, he had done a lot of advance work. He didn't just jump out there and say I was going to do this. He he had written ahead a lot. He had a slideshow that he did about the Oregon Trail. He arranged for lecture halls ahead of time and things like that. So at each mm. stop, he would want to put up a monument, a stone monument, and he would get the townspeople to finance the stone monument, and he'd do a dedication ceremony, and he'd have the school kids come and pile stones by the monument as a way of them to kind of have ownership of it, huh. and they would you know, take part in the dedication ceremony and things. And he, he got free meals, you know, almost everywhere. He got free <laughs> lodging almost everywhere. But in a lot of it, you know, they were out sleeping in the wagon. You know, because in the middle of Wyoming, there's not a lot in nineteen yeah. six. And, and how you know? how many of those monuments were dedicated, and then how many remain? When he was doing it, he put up around twenty some monuments himself. Mm-hmm. And by the time he was done, there were about one hundred and fifty along the trail. And now there's probably closer to maybe five hundred along the trail. Huh. And um, of the ones that he was involved in putting up, there all of them are still standing except for two. Which were the and two that went away? There was he put one up at the top of Lads Canyon in eastern Oregon in the Blue Mountains, and that one we think disappeared when they built the freeway through there. Wow! And the other one was on private property down in the 
bottom corner of eastern Oregon by a place called Lyme. And that one may still be there. The property owner has not been willing to let anybody on his property. <laughs> we, know, we, know that, we know there is an Oregon Trail monument, not, I mean a, a monument to some people who were killed in a, on the Oregon Trail and died. Wow. And, and we know that's on his property because somehow that, a picture of that got out. And Meeker said that he put the monument up within visual distance of that. But, you know, I've never been able to get in there, and, and nobody that I've contacted has been able to get in there. So oh, wow. That, oh, that wow. one may still be there. Wow. You know? And what was the eastern terminus? Was it Independence, Missouri, or did he go to some other destination at the eastern end of the trail? No, he was heading for Council Bluffs. Okay. That's where he that's where he started from. But he made it all the way to Indianapolis the the first winter. He wintered in Indianapolis. The next year, he spent the whole year going through Ohio, going through New York, and he got to New York City in September, and he managed to get allowed to camp in New York City. <laughs> he, he, he actually came into the city with a covered wagon and ox team and immediately got arrested for violating city ordinances. <laughs> and And... They impounded his wagon and ox team. Well, he went to the city council and they, you know, waived the <laughs> the rule, and so he was allowed to camp in Central Park. And he then one day drove over the Brooklyn Bridge. He was allowed to do that. And another day he drove all the way down Broadway to you know the bottom of Broadway, and the crowds were in the tens of thousands. And wow. he he was he became a national celebrity at that point. And then he continued on to Washington D.C. For huh. meeting with Teddy Roosevelt, I'll be darned. And yeah. you know, um, get a sense of what his personality was like based on all these different things you've described that he accomplished, especially as he got later into his life. Do you get any sense of what he was like as a person? He was one of these guys you either liked or hated. There was no, there was no in between. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? Tell me about that. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, he, he was like a bull when he got on onto a project, you know, he would not let go. And if somebody stood in his way, you know, he would just run over them. If he could, if he couldn't <laughs> run over them, he would go around them. But if you, but if you were as part of the project, you were his best friend, you know, and, and you know, he had no, and, and he, he didn't hold grudges. Um, you, you know who Edmund Meany was? Oh, very much uh, so. Yeah. 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 Tell, well, tell, okay, who well, was, tell, tell us, because some people listening might not know who Edmund Meany was. Who, who was okay. Edmund Meany? He was a professor at the University of Washington and the head of the history department, and Meany Hall's named after him up there, and he was very well known in Washington during his day. And, well, he and Meeker uh, were joint uh, chairman of the Washington exhibit to the Chicago World's Fair in 1893, and... Meeker was named the commissioner, and Meany was an underling, but they got in a fight over what was going on, and the fight was take, took place on the front pages of the Seattle Times. And eventually, Meany engineered Meeker's firing from his position as uh, you know, head of the Washington delegation. And then they got into it again in 1905 when he published his book, because Meeker called the Isaac Stevens a drunk. And he said Isaac Stevens was the reason, his drunkenness was the reason for the Indian Wars. Yeah. He 
said, and, and Meany went after Meeker in the pages and says, no way, he was never a drunk. He couldn't have accomplished everything he did. And that got fought out in, in the Seattle Times also. And then when Meeker started East, he needed somebody to manage the money that he was collecting. And he put a committee together of three guys, and he asked Meany to be one of the three guys, and Meany agreed. <laughs> So, you know. <laughs> I guess it was a smaller town back then. There were fewer fewer people to choose from, maybe. Um, yeah, maybe. I've seen these pictures of Ezra Meeker, um, one on the cover of your book where he's got a, a leg up on the running board of the um, specially converted, what is it, a, is it a Ford that's been converted it's to a, a prairie schooner? Yeah, it's a yeah. Ford. Yeah. And he has a look, you know, with his, with his dapper suit and his beard and his hat and his cane. Was was there a certain amount of vanity or vainness with uh, with Meeker? Um, not really. I don't think he had vanity in him at all. He just, he, he knew how publicity worked and he, he was, he was a master at that. And, you know, he he did, you know, he, and he, and he was on first name basis with governors and congressmen and senators and even five presidents of the United States. Hmm. And, you know, so he could, he could, live in a covered wagon and he could hobnob with these kind of people and have no trouble making the transition. I mean, he was, there was not a vein bone in his body. When they built the Meeker mansion, that was his wife's idea. He was content to live in a log cabin and he did a second trip over the Oregon trail from, uh, 1910 through 1912. And, then in 1916, he got an automobile built called the Pathfinder that looked like the one on the cover of the book somewhat. It was, I think, the nation's first RV, and he traveled across the Oregon Trail in that in uh, 1916 during a period when there were hardly any roads. In the early 1920s, he convinced the Army to fly him in an Army biplane over the Oregon Trail to Dayton, <laughs> Ohio, and then on to Washington, D.C., and so... He met with Calvin Coolidge at that point, and in uh, and then and this picture on the cover of the book is taken in 1927, just a little bit before in 1928. I mean, just a little bit before he got ill and died. Hmm. Uh, he he had, Henry Ford had built this for him, and he drove it from well, he had a driver because he never knew how to drive, and he, he got a driver to drive several drivers actually. <laughs> And he got them to drive him to uh, the Ford factory where uh, Ford said he was going to put some better brakes on it. And Meeker fell ill there. And the wagon stayed at the, this picture stayed at the Ford uh, factory. And they put Meeker on a train and sent him back to Seattle. And he recovered briefly. And then he relapsed. And his dying words that he whispered to his daughter is, I can't go yet. I've got too much work to do. Oh, wow. And he was almost, he was almost 98 years old. Wow. Um, couple, a couple more questions for you. Um, now that specifically that the vehicle that's on the cover of your book, does that vehicle still exist somewhere? No, they've looked for it high and low. Huh. Uh, you know, and the, the last, uh, after Meeker died, his, he started an organization called the Oregon Trails Memorial Association, OTMA. And they took over the wagon, uh, the, the Oxmobile, they called it. And it, sh- it showed up at, uh, at a, an event at uh, Independence Rock in Wyoming. And it showed up at a couple Boy Scout events. 
And then sometime in the 1940s, it just disappeared. Mm-hmm. And Ford, Ford doesn't have a record of where it went or what happened to it or anything. So it, I suspect it ended up in the junkyard somewhere, huh. but we don't, we don't know. Now, for your research, have you driven long stretches of this trail and kind of recreated parts of the route? I've been over the Oregon Trail probably a half a dozen times or more. Huh. And what, what started me off in this was looking for the monuments that Meeker put up. And so my wife and I, just for a fun hobby, when I, re, even, I was still teaching, we were trying to find the monuments that he put up through Washington and Oregon and Idaho and so on. And uh, then I discovered that you guys own the Meeker papers. Mm-hmm. You have, you know, like 14 archival boxes. And so I have been transcribing those things for two decades. Oh. And, and the letters in there kind of, and the journals and things that are in there open my view that this guy was way more complicated than one might know. And so that's when I started writing the books. And oh. I've done four books about him and, you know, pretty much covered his life. And it couldn't happen without the Meeker papers that are sitting in the research center in Tacoma. That's great that they're being put to use. That's that's the the access part. You know, it's preservation and access. And without the access, it's sort of pointless. So I'm, I'm thrilled to hear you're using them to that degree. That's that's excellent. Um, they help create four books. <laughs> that's that's fabulous. So in your travels and looking for the monuments and going through the papers, um, would you say that uh, he was successful in his quest to save the Oregon Trail? I think he was successful beyond his wildest dreams. I mean, he fought tooth and nail right up to the day he died to memorialize the trail. And the organizations like the OCTA, the Oregon California Trails Association, consider Meeker, you know, his their mentor, basically. I mean, uh, he he just spawned a movement that created the eventually led to the National Trails Act, and you know, the Oregon Trail is now protected what's left of it is protected under the national park service and there are interpretive centers all along the oregon trail now like baker city's got an amazing one in eastern oregon uh there in elko nevada's got one and they're they're just you know, omaha nebraska's got a great one at the mormon center and so yeah i would say he was successful and meeker's legacy um apart from what he did as a businessman and then with his efforts to bring attention to the Oregon Trail. I know he was, I think he was on the jury that um, for Leshi, right? Right, yes, and he refused to convict. It, he let, That led to a hung jury. Well, he and one other guy, this was a war. He said it was an act of war. And, and he says, besides, Leshi could not have been where the prosecution said he was. And he, he basically proved it eventually that Leshi could not have been involved in, in the murder that he was convicted of. So can we say that Meeker, is, was he fairly progressive? Was he, did he harbor any, like, any sort of racist things that came out later, or is he sort of a, does, his, does his record sort of stand up to the scrutiny of you know, 150 years later when we kind of look at, look at people from a different time and hold them up to our current standards? Does he still sort of pass the, you know, the, the politically correct test or the wokeness test? He was way ahead of his times. He... Uh, when the anti-Chinese movement was going on in Tacoma, he fought it tooth and nail. He even testified against uh, the mayor of Tacoma and others who were involved in it at a grand jury, trying you know, to get them 
arrested. Um, he supported women's uh, right to vote. He was a financial donator to it. His wife uh, held meetings in the mansion, and you know, so and he attended the the women's rights convention. He knew mm-hmm. Susan B. Anthony on a first name <laughs> basis, and and so yeah, I would say he was ahead of his time. And. And so, based on all that, based on what he accomplished, and based on what kind of guy he seems to have been, does he is he as well known as he should be in the Evergreen State? I would say not in the Evergreen State. Although there are a ton of things here in this state that are named Meeker, you know, go down the main street in Kent, you go down Meeker Street in Puyallup. Meeker managed to save the name Pioneer Avenue for hmm. Puyallup. Hmm. Because they were going to just use numbers, and he said, "No, you can use numbers elsewhere, but this street's Pioneer Street, you know." <laughs> and you know, so I, I would say that he's better known uh, in Oregon trail circles and nationally, especially nationally, mm-hmm. than than he is known here in, in Washington State. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, my books have changed some of that, but you know, yeah. And your book's a fabulous summertime read. I mean, it's great read any time of year, but a perfect thing to pick up for the summer, especially in a time when people are, I think, itching to get out and travel more and get on the road where they haven't been able to so much in the last year or so. So, Dennis Larson, thank you for joining us on Columbia Conversations, and thanks for all your work on making those records that are being preserved at the State Historical Society, bringing them to life and helping them reach new audiences. That's that's priceless work. So thank you very much. Okay, thank you. Thank you to Dennis Larson for speaking with me for this episode of Columbia Conversations from the Washington State Historical Society. Larson's most recent book is called Saving the Oregon Trail, Ezra Meeker's Last Grand Quest. It was published in 2020 by WSU Press. For more information about Columbia Magazine or to subscribe, please visit WashingtonHistory.org. I'm Felix Bunnell.